from 87 Lafayette, it's Coronapod. I'm Matt. And I'm Adam. Adam, I've got to say, I'm really excited about our guest today. I think it's going to be really educational and just really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Um, shocked that no one else has booked him as a guest yet, because when you guys hear what he has to say, you will be blown away. He did say he's had one other interview, but uh, for our listeners who are on tenterhooks trying to figure out who our guest is, we are going to be interviewing Scott Stern, the author of The Trials of Nina McCall, who's a real expert on uh, public health, quarantines, and the law. So stay tuned for that. But... Before that, hump day, how are we feeling? I feel good. I think, honestly, um, we're starting to get it figured out. Are we? We missed the noon dance break. I texted you in the middle of the day, dance break, and you didn't respond. I was uh, in bed under the covers listening to an expert on some very boring industry uh, put me to sleep. But, um, no, I think think it's getting better. My team has started to figure out how we work remote. our fun is getting compressed into the right amount of time instead of like 30 minutes of us all Zooming, trying to make each other feel good. So I, I think we got it figured out. Last week, you had some creative ideas for sort of different spirit days throughout the week. You had a school spirit day. You had a make a model of the coronavirus day. You had a baking day where you actually made some delicious bread. Did you extend that into this week or... Are we now just sort of back to normal? Last week, we did pretty well. This week, we had a list of activities. Um, They have not materialized to the same degree that I would have hoped. Today was on Wednesdays, we wear pink, and two people showed up to the end-of-day check-in wearing pink. Um, Out of of how many? There should have been six of us in pink. So disappointing. Not a great showing, but, um, you know, we're, we're trying. We're trying. And you know what? Those two people, they, they made the rest of us laugh. So, felt good about that. How about, how about you? You know, it's okay. I think my colleagues, were, we're still figuring out how to work together remotely, but I think we've made strides in that. It's not easy. I think being cooped up is, is hard, um, but I've definitely gotten more used to not leaving the apartment for 24, 48, 72 hours at a time, and... Um, and really not spending a meaningful amount of time outside. But it's it's hard, and I think what I'm finding hardest is that we don't know when this is going to be over. Trump claims, you know, by Easter, but there's no possibility that that's going to happen or is even remotely a good idea. Um, and, you know, maybe this will last into or, or through the summer or beyond, but I really hope not for all of our sakes. Yeah. Yeah, I I think we'll be all right. I'm feeling good that routine is here. Routine is what we need. You and I sit down every night and record the podcast. This uh, has been a real balm, I I must say. It makes me feel better every night to do something a little bit creative and, uh, you know, reach the dozens and dozens of listeners who are eager for our voices. It's it's completely self-indulgent, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing at a time like this. Absolutely. Well, speaking of a time like this, I want to talk to someone who can give us 
a real expert opinion on what's going on, uh, which is definitely not you, and it's definitely not me. So I think we should give Scott a call. As Absolutely. Let's hear about a, uh, a public health emergency 100 years ago, and it's not the one you're thinking of. Hey, Scott, it's Matt and Adam from Coronapod. How's it going? Good. How are you guys? We're good. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk tonight. Yeah, totally. So, so I think it'd be helpful just to get kind of uh, the story that you wrote about in your book. Um, I told our, our listeners that it is a, a public health emergency from 100 years ago, but it's not the one they're thinking of. So... We, of course, are not talking about the Spanish flu here, but instead we're talking about what exactly? So my book was about uh, something called the American Plan, which was a, yeah, as you said, a public health, a government program under which officials locked up tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of women in what some women called concentration camps um, because they thought that those women had syphilis or gonorrhea. Um, and the American plan began in uh, the late 19-teens um, at roughly the same time that the influenza pandemic was happening um, during World War I. Um, but uh, the American plan continued um, to be enforced uh, throughout the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, um, and in some places since the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of women were locked in these facilities um, simply because officials suspected that they had a transmitted infection. And when you say suspected, that means that people weren't necessarily tested. It was just if someone thought that you had gonorrhea, for example, they could forcibly lock you up? Well, yes. I mean, most, most people were tested um, because the whole point of this was ostensibly to wipe out syphilis and gonorrhea or to control them. Um, and so there was a logic to, like, part of the logic of that with testing people. Um, it's important to know that at the time, the false positive rates were as high as 25%. And there are certainly records of women who were incarcerated without being tested or after testing negative if the official thought that they seemed promiscuous enough. Um, uh, yeah. And so what were the powers that actually enabled the government to, uh, to do this? So initially, uh, officials were acting under um, the what's called the police power of the state, which is basically states are entrusted with the power to protect the health and welfare of their citizens. And so there are very old public health statutes that enable public health authorities to do an extraordinary range of things in order to protect the public health. By the, within a very short period of time, um, pretty much everyone thought that it would be more efficient to pass specific statutes enabling the specific um, examination and incarceration of people suspected of having syphilis and gonorrhea. So um, every single state by the early 20s had passed an American Plan statute and hundreds of cities had as well. Um, and as I write about in my book, all of those laws um, are still on the books in some form to this day. Many of them have been absorbed into the broader police power, public health statutes of the state or city, um, but none of them, none of those specific American plan laws have been struck down uh, by a court. 
So one question we had about this actually was, what of these are federal powers? What are state powers? It feels like there's a lot of tension right now in the response to the coronavirus between, for instance, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York and President Trump. Um, who Who is in control here? So normally the answer to that question would be the states and the cities. Um, the federal government has uh, a fairly broad array of public health powers um, that have been entrusted to the public health service and thus to the Surgeon General. And these include the powers to detain people, to uh, quarantine people, um, to issue sanitary cordons. Um, normally, that would only apply to where there's like a public health threat that would uh, people entering the country or crossing state lines. Everything else is supposed to be um, uh, controlled by the state and, and municipal public health authorities. Now, that has been complicated by the Trump administration because in 2017, the CDC issued these new regulations basically saying that they weren't going to defer to state public health authorities anymore and that they were going to um, enforce their public health uh, authority more broadly. Now, that hasn't really happened yet, um, but it certainly could. So at the moment, what we're looking at is the federal government has power at airports um, and in a very few limited circumstances, but the vast amount uh, of ways that you know, the public health authority might affect people's lives is by state and local officials. Got it. So that's to say, if, for example, Andrew Cuomo in New York said, I want to forcibly isolate anyone who is confirmed to have coronavirus, or I want to forcibly quarantine people suspected of having coronavirus. That is something that is well within the realm of Cuomo's kind of public health power and state police power. I mean, that would have to go to a court. It's certainly within the realm of the plausible. Um, there is some doctrine that suggests that the government has to show, I think the standard is like clear and compelling evidence that they're using the least restrictive means to protect the public health. Now, with such a pressing and frightening pandemic, it seems likely to me that a court would uphold that if like public health authorities in New York were like, this is the only thing we can do to protect the public health. I, you know, I would be surprised if a court would question that in the midst of a pandemic. And that's often why civil liberties are infringed in the midst of pandemics. Um, but it, it would, of course, go to a court. And there are certain limitations. There, there's, a, there's a century worth of case law saying that um, authorities are not allowed to discriminate racially in who they impose quarantine and isolation on. Now, of course, they've always done that anyway. Um, just because it's on the, as part of the law doesn't mean that it's going to be followed. But theoretically, there are certain protections that the courts have established over the past century. Can you speak to that some more? I know in your book you talk about how these laws were, you know, applicable both to men and women in the same degree, but they were almost exclusively applied against women. Can you talk about kind of the way in which this power hasn't always been equally applied? Yeah, sure. So in the, in the context of the American plan, um, every single, as you said, every single state and municipal law that enabled officials to detain, forcibly examine, and, and then uh, incarcerate 
women who had or were suspected of having STIs, all of those laws are gender neutral. They said any person reasonably suspected of, of, of um, having syphilis or gonorrhea. Um, in practice, though, it was like 99% of people or something who were detained under these laws were women. And you would think that that would open it up to a court challenge, but that never happened. Um, there, I mean, they, these laws were challenged repeatedly, but every single time a court upheld it as justified under the public health authority, and the courts often used really sexist logic, saying, well, of course women are a greater threat to public health. Um, and this is this kind of uh, like importing of sexist or racist uh, logic into uh, a facially neutral law is certainly not limited to the American plan. Um, in in all kinds of uh, ways, historically, um, public health authorities have um, used uh, neutral laws in discriminatory ways. So a famous case would be the plague outbreaks in San Francisco in the early 20th century, these were all these laws were theoretically race neutral, but they were always applied discriminatorily against people of Chinese descent. And so there, there's, a, there's a history of, of race neutral or gender neutral laws being used um, to enable discrimination. Now, theoretically, that shouldn't be possible under the, you know, the, the statutes and the case law, but in, in times of emergency, uh, you know, authorities often um, exercise their worst impulses and courts let them do it. That feels like an especially relevant thing to think about now as President Trump calls this the Chinese virus, as there have been repeated incidents of um, harassment um, against Chinese and, and Chinese Americans um, as a result of this virus. Is that something you've been thinking about? Yeah, something I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, one one thing I've been thinking about is that there's a big difference between what's happening right now and the, I mean, there's a million big differences between what's happening right now and the American plan. But one is that the American plan never made any sense from a public health standpoint because the point of isolation, the point of quarantine is to stop the spread of highly contagious uh, diseases. And syphilis and gonorrhea are only communicable through sex, you know, and, and you can't, like, cough and give someone gonorrhea, whereas you can cough and give someone coronavirus. So there is a logic for isolation. There is a logic for quarantine right now. But the problem, the, the, the real motivation behind the American plan was as a means of incarcerating promiscuous women. And so it, it became a, a great excuse for authorities who wanted to lock up women because they thought, you know, women are not abiding by Victorian sexual norms anymore. And so there's a great, I have a great fear that authorities might use their power or citizens might, you know, exercise their own bigotry against people who they perceive as disproportionately to blame for this. And, you know, there's, there's absolutely no public health logic for targeting people of any uh, racial background in this, Epidemic, you know, is being spread rapidly across the U.S., across all races, across all ethnicities. But as you said, there's been a an uptick in in hate crimes and, and bigotry toward people of Chinese descent, and so it's something I think there's a great fear of that that we're going to see either the state exercise power discriminatorily, or we're going to see people, you know, do it in their daily life.
immigration context. We're already seeing the Trump administration use this as an excuse to close borders, and you know they're refusing to release people who are held in ICE custody. So in the immigration context, where this, this rhetoric is already highly racialized by the Trump administration, I think there's tremendous danger. Going back, one thing that I was really interested to learn from your book is how long the American plan was used for. Uh, you know, it, it started in the late 19-teens, but was uh, continually used through, I think, into the 60s. Can you talk a little bit about what the American plan looked like um, in that period versus, you know, the World War One period when it originated? Yeah, sure. So in World War One, when women were detained and examined under the American plan, um, they would often be held for weeks or for months. I think the average was about two months um, of incarceration, during which they were, quote-unquote, treated for, a, for their sexually transmitted infection. Um, treatment at the time consisted of injections of mercury or the ingestion of arsenic-based drugs, which do not, you know, cure syphilis or gonorrhea, but will kill you or in the process poison you and hurt a tremendous amount. By the 60s and by the 70s, um, when these laws are still being enforced in a few places, um, those treatments are very are gone, and instead we have antibiotics. You know, they have penicillin, which is a highly effective treatment for syphilis and gonorrhea. Um, so it, there was less of a, of a, of a need, or less of a necessity that authorities felt to incarcerate women for weeks or for months at a time. So it was much more common to incarcerate someone for a week or for a shorter amount of time. Um, still, people's liberty was being abridged, but the treatments were more effective, and because of that, the length of time people spent behind bars was shorter. Um, but, you know, it's still worth noting that, that people were being dis- discriminatorily uh, stopped, examined, and incarcerated um, for, with no public health logic to, to justify it. Let's, let's talk about that for a second, because obviously there's nothing illegal about having syphilis. There's nothing illegal about having gonorrhea. So if we play that forward to today, right, if there are attempts to Right now, everything is voluntary, right? I am being told to self-isolate. I am being told not to, you know, gather in groups. Um, But, you know, Cuomo has said he's not going to fine people if they're found in groups. If you, they're just going to get dispersed, right? Is there a world in which if I have coronavirus, I am kind of restricted from doing things, right? There are a lot of people who have pretty mild forms of coronavirus is there a world in which it doesn't necessarily become illegal, but I am told I need to go to this place and I need to stay there for two weeks until I no longer, you know, test above some threshold? Is that something that that could happen under these same powers? So under the public health power of the state, I mean, broadly, yes. The, the quarantine is not often used, and when it is used, um, usually people are told to quarantine in their own homes. Um, so it's, it's unlikely, I, I want to stress, it's unlikely that the government is going to open up institutions or camps for people with coronavirus and tell them they have to be there, otherwise they're violating the law. Could they do that? 
maybe, if they claim that there's a clear and compelling public health necessity to do so, yeah, they can do that under the law. And then a court would have to decide if they're telling the truth. Um, uh, so, yes, the, the state's public health power is quite broad, and there's a good there's good reason for that. And you know, we're living through, I think, a fairly good example of, of why the state has this sort of vague and flexible public health power. But what history teaches us is that humans run this system, and humans are imperfect and have biases, and they often use these broad powers to exercise those biases. And so, it's really important that we hold them in check. That if authorities are telling people, okay, we're going to make it a crime for someone with coronavirus to leave their home, we need to make sure that that, that that is actually justified by science. If they say, okay, we're going to gather all people with coronavirus or all, pe- all people with COVID-19 in institutions in the woods or whatever, that certainly better be justified by really clear and compelling science. Because otherwise there would be a fear that these public health authorities are going to apply these broad powers discriminatorily. So over the past hundred years, the public perception has really changed. And and this is something that you talk about in your book about how uh, public perception of sexual mores changed um, over the period in which the American plan was implemented. How do you feel that the public view of really restrictive um, measures like these and really strong government powers to um, to enforce anything related to public health has changed since the since the time of the American plan. I mean, as you say, well, so people are, I think, less accepting of public health justified restrictions on their liberty. So early in the you know throughout U.S. history, things like quarantine were relatively common. You know, people were often taken aside because they had tuberculosis or because they had flu or because they had plague. In a time before we had more effective uh, medical treatments for all of these, like, horrible potential pandemics, um, there, things like quarantine, you know, people being isolated in their homes with, like, a sign outside was not at all uncommon. Um, as you know, medicine advanced, and as the uh, jurisprudence of civil rights advanced, um, people became less willing to put up with that. And in part because there was actually less need for it. You know, you, there, smallpox was, was often a reason why there would be quarantine. Now smallpox doesn't exist. Plague was a big reason why there, were, there, why there was quarantine. Plague barely exists in the U.S. Tuberculosis, there are there still a, a, a cases, like one or two cases a year of quarantine for tuberculosis, but that's, you know, very uncommon. And so because of that, um, people are much less willing to accept it. And so I think there would be a tremendous amount of resistance if the government put into effect coercive um, or punitive um, isolation rules when it came to coronavirus. I think social isolation is very important. And particularly it's really important that people who have coronavirus or think they have it isolate themselves. Um, But, you know, a lot of public health experts have come out and said sometimes when the government imposes these coercive um, uh, isolation rules, it's very counterproductive because people then don't report when they have symptoms, they don't report when they think they have it because they don't want their liberty to be infringed. And then those people go out and spread it. 
So it's much more effective if you institute mass testing and give people the information that they need to isolate themselves more effectively on a voluntary basis. Got it. Well, Scott, we don't want to use up too much of your time. This has been incredibly thought-provoking, and thank you so much for coming on Chronopod, and please stay healthy. Yeah, you as well. Thanks, Scott. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. All right, goodbye. That was Scott Stern. He's the author of The Trials of Nina McCall, Sex, Surveillance, and the Decades-Long Government Plan to Imprison Promiscuous Women. I cannot recommend the book enough. I read it a couple years ago. It was fantastic, an absolute page-turner. And while you're cooped up inside, what what better thing to do than read about how poorly a public health crisis was uh, handled 100 years ago? Yeah, in fact... Actually, I'm really glad we got to interview him because in the New York Times book review, it said, what kinds of public mandates are justifiable in combating contagious disease? Is involuntary quarantine ever acceptable? I would have welcomed Stern's views on such questions. And we got some of those tonight. So uh, that was fantastic. So I think that's just about it for our show today. And uh, hopefully... There's more good news, or there's some good news to come in the next couple of days. And uh, we'll keep checking in. This is Coronapod. Until we chat next time, stay healthy. Chronopod is brought to you by Momo the Cat. Follow her at Momo underscore is underscore a underscore cat.